The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mensinga, joined by my lovely co-host, Bethany Ayers. How are things going, Bethany? They're okay. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> I always feel like I give you the big wind-up, and then I get the softball back. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I, I think it's okay. <laughs> I went out last night and played golf for the first time. I don't know if it counts as playing golf, like hit golf balls with a golf club for the first time. That's not mini golf. So not putting, but driving. Okay. So you went to like a driving range where you have like a bucket of balls and you hit them as far as you can. Except that it's a virtual driving range in the middle of Soho. (laughs) Does that that really count as golf? It's not quite the same, is it? Well, I think it does. I kept getting distracted and freaking out because it was so loud and it was like, rockets whizzing by of sound. And I was like, what is that? And every time it's just somebody driving. And so it's a combination of like the whoosh sound and then it hits a wall. It was fun. But I was doing it with Rob, our guest today. It all ties in. (laughs) It all ties in. We did record our interview with Rob a while ago because then we needed to read the book and then I had COVID in life, but we're going to talk about the book today. But in the meantime, I've become friends with Rob. So we had lunch once and then he put a post on LinkedIn about making golf more inclusive. And I thought the post was excellent and like a masterclass in actually doing like proactive inclusion rather than just like, yeah, why don't you play golf as well? Just go to a driving range, get some lessons. It'll be fine. Instead, it was acknowledgement that golf is scary and exclusionary for most of us, that it can be very intimidating. And therefore, how can we create a safe space where people who have not traditionally been invited to golf courses can show up? I had a grandfather who was a golf fanatic, like, you know, one of these golf people, That seems to happen. And he retired at 50, 52, and then golfed every Monday through Friday until about 85 when most of his golf friends died. And not only did he golf every day, he golfed so much that his thumbnails kind of migrated and changed shape (laughs) from like so much golf. Wow. That's a tremendous amount of golf. Yeah. And also he was originally left-handed, but hurt his shoulder and arm from, I think, too much tennis. And so then switched to golfing with his right arm. Wow. This feels like golfing for survival. Yeah. And then also he was a, grew up on a farm. And so his whole life woke up at five in the morning. And so when I'd spend the night at their house, his golf practice room was next to the room that I stayed in. And so then I just hear like thunk, thunk, click, thunk from five o'clock in the morning, which is like practicing putting in the room. Okay. Yeah, because what else would you do when you wake at five in the morning and start practicing your golf? Yeah, yeah, okay. And all of the men in the family 
had to learn how to play golf and there was a requirement for golf and all of the women were actively excluded. So despite that being my grandfather, you know, this intensity of golf in my childhood, I had never picked up a golf club until yesterday. So there's like a lot of emotion around golf for me. So when Rob put that post up, I was super keen to give it a go. My swing was not impressive. I was kind of afraid of hurting my back. And so I didn't go for a full swing, but I was able to hit the ball regularly and consistently. And now we have decided to do another golf day in January and start the Unprofessional Golfers Association and try and get more women involved. That is an amazing story. You're right. At first glance, it wouldn't have occurred to me that an invite for virtual golf might potentially have an exclusionary element to it. In any event, it is lovely to see that you are super jazzed up for a second round of golf. uh, So that's fantastic. And that is a nice segue into our episode today, which is how to tame a visionary CEO with the Entrepreneurial Operating System, or EOS for shorthand. We are joined by your now golfing partner, Rob Lydiard. He is a professional EOS implementer and former co-founder and CEO of Yapster. And before we get to that, Bethany, a bit of a mini book review from us on Traction, which is the EOS Bible by Gina Whitman. We'll go through the book chapter by chapter. But first off, general impressions. What do you think about the book? First of all, I just felt like, why did I not know about this book earlier? Because instead of my 20 years of experience and learning and failing and iterating, I could have just gotten a lot there a lot faster because it's most of it is stuff that I do know is common sense, but with a lovely structure to it. And what I also really liked was there are meetings to have, exercises to do, and the amount of time you should allocate for each area. So you can just take somebody else's experience and just start to roll it out. So it's like, here's the vision section. I can't remember exactly, but you know, this should take you no more than half a day. This is how you should get started. These are the activities everybody should do. And it just saves so much time versus like, how many times have you sat there thinking about, okay, we're doing our strategy day. What should the agenda be? How are we going to cover it? What would a cool activity be? Oh, that activity worked. Oh, this would work. No, this ended up not working at all. And to just not have to have those conversations anymore. You're right. There definitely is a paint by numbers thing going on here. The book is great for non-experienced companies or CEOs to run their businesses pretty effectively and efficiently with a prescriptive set of steps to walk through to make it happen. From an experienced operator standpoint, it really is a good refresher on the fundamentals you know, you sometimes forget about or overcomplicate. The first chapter of Vision talked a lot about strategy and forecasting, but ironically, didn't really talk a lot about actually starting with a vision to begin with, which didn't really make sense to me. Also, the forecasting focus on a three-year plan seems overwrought and unnecessary as you're usually hyper-focused on the budget and forecast for sure to get to the next round, whatever time period that is. And usually that's 12, 18, 24 months. Anything that comes after that really is hard to predict in a scale-up world and a scale-up company. And you usually end up just forecasting out your trajectory from that first piece, that 12, 18, 24-month piece in terms of that three-year uh, three-year view in totality in that case. So it just seemed, it seemed a little uh, overwrought from my point of view. You should start with a vision. But how many times do people not start with a vision because they feel like they already have a vision? 
and they've already done that work, but yet actually nobody's aligned to the vision. Like, I just think it's good to sometimes go back to basics and make sure everybody's aligned. What is the business going to be like in three years? And how are we going to structure it? What is it going to feel like? And what does that mean for your organization and for who you need to hire and for your next level of leadership? And I feel like I've done these things, but not necessarily by design. You know, it's a bit more of luck rather than design. And this is just a way to make sure that you actually do the right activities meaningfully and don't forget them. What I liked in this was that you hold on to your three-year plan until the last year of it, and then you create the next one. So it's not what we tend to do in SaaS businesses is you create your three-year plan, but Brandon, to your point, everything's moving. Who knows what's actually going to happen? We'll just rebudget in 12 months. It's not real. And I think there's something around the accountability of multiple years and also the fact that cash isn't free anymore. That means that you need to be much more focused on your cash management across multiple years. I think, and, and maybe these are just my experiences, is we do a three-year plan, but we rebudget every year and we're not held to account to how close to reality we were in years two and three. Like the only thing that ends up mattering is whether or not we hit year one's target. And then I actually don't know because we never go back and revisit it. I suspect year two's target when it's now year one is different to what year two's target was a year previously. And so it means that like your cash out date changes, how much money you need, when money was free, it meant that you never really cared about profitability and you were always like just chasing that top line number and profitability was always 18 months away. No matter how far away it was, it was always another 18 months because you're like pouring more cash in. So I think just in this new changing world, and we don't know when how expensive cash is going to stay, going back to some of the basics of year two and year three actually mattering. Because I don't know how many budgets where you're like, we're going to do 10 million this year, 20 million next year, and 120 million the year after, because everything's going to align and it's going to be amazing. And we're going to be just like throwing off cash. I exaggerate, but you know, it's similar. And everybody looks at that last number, or let's say it's a five-year plan or whatever. And nobody really is thinking that that's going to be it. Or like, that's just so much tomorrow's problem. But that's where suddenly the business looks interesting. So we're into uh, part two for the people side. The book talks about the right people in the right seats. And this nomenclature is something we all believe in, I think. The way that they determine this, according to the traction book, number one, the right people side is to look at their core values, which is do they adhere to the core values of the organization? And they rate that with one of three things. Either the answer is yes, they do. No, they don't. Or there's a bit of a middling score. And that's the core value side. Then the right-hand side of it is, the right seat in this case. And the right seat, they have an acronym, it's called GWC, which means get it, want it, and capacity to do it. And the get it part is, do they get their job? Do they get the role? Do they understand the context of the business and know how to get stuff done? The want it is, do they want the job inherently? And capacity is, you know, do they have the right skills, the right intellect, the right curiosity? And in the book, at least, it says, this is either a yes or a no. So with that little setup, what do you think, Bethany? So this is one of those examples of something that I really liked and could just short circuit how much time we've spent rolling out performance management 
is it too big? Is it too little? It always ends up getting way too detailed to a point where you just don't know what people are being measured on and which parts matter and how to change behavior. And so I just love the simplicity of it. You're looking at up to five values and GWC, so eight attributes, and it could be less than that if you have fewer company values. Super clear, rather than on a score to five, rather than this, rather than, you know, it just, how many, I hate this term, and yet here I go saying it, how many cycles I've wasted at work trying to agree how we're going to rate people and the debates and the versioning and then we roll something out and it's not good that i'd love you could just start with this so this is a traction is reframing what is a performance management review system they don't call it that but that's exactly what it is and i think to your point i like this because it's deadly simple and it covers off the core stuff that actually matters in this case and i think you are right people get lost in performance review systems and they end up being very ineffective in a lot of ways so we are in violent agreement on number two. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Number three, data. So on the data side, Traction talks about the leadership team using a scorecard. And the scorecard is the weekly pulse, which is the leading indicators of bigger numbers that actually matter in terms of KPIs going forward. What do you make of that? I already do it. So I guess this, that was one of those like, tick, done. What I thought was interesting is the meeting management. So you just say on track, off track, and you don't give loads of excuses or rereading. Like, first of all, assuming that everybody understands how to read the numbers instead of, I don't know if you've been around where like people just walk through and go, it's a seven. Seven is good because blah, blah, blah. You're just like, we see this every week. Why are you waffling? So I like that it's like, we're all on the same page. And then either if it's on track, cool, we don't need to talk about it. If it's off track, we stick it on to the issues list and then we talk about it. And that level of discipline, I have not been great at or I've not seen being great at. But having a weekly scorecard that is reviewed where you understand how you're tracking have always done like 100% behind it. I just think I could do it better by being more disciplined. So it's maybe five, maybe 10 metrics. And quite often it will highlight the areas where there's problems. So help desk ticket clearance time, for example. And if that falls off, if there's a massive issue with that and we have to look at it, it'll end up being because the bugs aren't getting addressed and bugs aren't getting addressed because dev don't have time to address the bugs and they don't have time to address the bugs because the sales team has sold something that doesn't exist that the development team now has to desperately build. And so from that one number that's off, you uncover everything that led you there and how can you start to solve it? And so even though ticket clearance times is very much a customer success issue, it is a number that's quite nice to understand how are we treating our customers? How, what kind of experience are our customers getting in a leading way? So that's why I do think that you have to agree the most important numbers. For me, another one is pipe gen because it's the fuel that feeds go to market. You need to understand when pipe gen is completely off where it should be and what's gone wrong and be able to address it that week and not later. Maybe the question back to you then is, do you not think, because the sales leader or the commercial leader is going to be sitting there with their functional team looking exactly at this and also the ticket, the customer success team, 
they're in the best position to think it through and solve it either as a functional group or to really populate it up to the other leader of the other group or whatever other groups that they're thinking about in this case and working with those individuals to make it happen. The question at a leadership level is what is leadership really doing in that case? Because if the stakeholders aren't in that meeting to have that discussion, it's almost pointless in some way. All you're really doing at that point is saying, hey, you know, there's a problem, sales, do what you should be doing. Yeah, it could be, but at least you are aware. So if suddenly pipeline's gone away and then like week two pipeline's gone away, week three pipeline's gone away, finance is going to want to know that because it's going to change and adjust forecasts. So it gives you a nice understanding of the entire system and how it's all interconnected. Even if you're not all solving every problem together, everybody should understand what's going on and how that might be affecting your area or how you've unwittingly hurt somebody else. The one thing I really liked about the issues chapter was that the reason why issues don't get resolved is they're almost always people issues and they require making hard decisions or having hard conversations. And I read that and I just went, that is so true. For me, that was probably like the biggest moment of truth in the book. And I think that will change the way I resolve issues going forward. So let's move on to section five, which is process. And the point of the process chapter really is to document the core processes of the company at really kind of a high level, which is fundamentally, what is the marketing process in the company? Fundamentally, what is the sales process in the company, HR, et cetera, et cetera? What was your take on this chapter? So I guess this was a bit like, what was the other chapter? Oh, the data chapter. I'm like, yep, do that. Except, you know, he does have us print it and laminate it. It is important for the functions to have their processes documented. It's equally important to actually document the process between the functions. We get into this silo situation where marketing doesn't know how to interact with sales, as an example. And very simply, they can decide on what that is between them, which is you take the leaders together and perhaps stakeholders from the teams, and they sit there in a room and they whiteboard out what are the 10 ways in which we interact or want to interact, and then how do we actually do that and then capture that on paper or in a laminated fashion. (laughs) (laughs) And something that's really interesting to do is to pull together everybody involved in the customer journey and do that same thing. So from marketing all the way through closing, onboarding, upselling, and invoicing, and figuring out and making sure all those interconnects are are good. On to the last chapter, which is called Traction. I found one sentence in particular, I think this is actually the most powerful quote from the book, to be honest, or at least it resonated with me, which is, well-run meetings are the moment of truth for accountability. What was your thought? I, I agree. And I would love to give this meeting structure a go. I'd love to be the one running the meetings in this meeting structure and see if it works. I also think in many ways, I was, as you know, I think we both were pretty resistant to reading the book very skeptical who can tell us what to do. No one. And he actually is philosophically quite aligned with what we've talked about in the past, like with the radical candor, not shying away from tough conversations. You get accountability because you hold people accountable and you're not afraid of that. And I think doing traction properly actually gets pretty hardcore where you are openly talking about your team and who's in the right seat and who's not the right person. There's a lot of dealing with people in kind, but 
honest ways throughout the book that I was surprised by. And I wonder if that's actually what makes rolling it out the most difficult. Like if you take this book and just literally follow all of it, you're not going to be successful. You'll only be successful if you also bring the bravery and courage to it. And now let's move on to our conversation with the master of EOS, Mr. Rob Libyard. I'm really excited to have Rob on because he's a visionary CEO, so the bane of most of our existences. <laughs> um, and also, I just thought it might be worth sharing how Rob and I ended up getting in contact. Rob is a fan of the operations room and so much of a fan that he dropped me a message on LinkedIn thanking us for the show. So first of all, Rob, thank you very much. Clearly, flattery will get you any, everywhere. Welcome on. <laughs> Thank you for having me. So when Rob said that he liked the show, I asked him what he liked in particular and if there were any topics he'd like us to cover. And Rob said he liked, I think it was the OKR episode, and asked if we could cover getting operational excellence wrong or understanding the import of it possibly a bit too late. And I was like, huh, sounds like there might be a story there. So can you tell us a bit about your come to Jesus moment when you realize that operations matter after all. So Supergroup PLC bought our software, Yapster, and rolled it out globally when it was extremely nascent, like first year, like wasn't ready to, the notifications were not configured in a sensitive way. So like you had people all over the world, 5,000 people in every, like in 44 countries getting pinged, everybody posted to a, the equivalent of an Instagram feed. You imagine that. Imagine if you've got a push notification with a summary preview every time some random on your Instagram posts a picture of their cat, which was quite cool. If I'd have thought to go to a VC, they probably would have said, wow, that's mad that you've just rolled that out in the way you have, but it's probably a signal that there's something there. But we rolled the product out. We didn't go and raise institutional capital because we sort of knew it wasn't quite ready and I'd never done that before. And then after a couple of years, the initial enthusiasm for the idea had started to wane. The internal sponsors, I think, were starting to lose confidence that, that we'd be able to execute the vision that had been sold. So consequently, you start losing some customers. And at that point, you're now, your original financial assumptions now cease to be quite so believable, right? Because you're, you haven't cracked product market fit quickly. And now there's some evidence that you don't have the traction that you imagined, even though there's enough there to keep you going like a global rollout from Superdry and other customers coming on. So basically we started losing customers and rightfully so, although it was hard to accept at the time and were struggling to kind of tell a story about why we were the next zillion dollar company. And so we just ended up in that, in that trap. I didn't want to give up because I felt like I owed it to the customers that we did have that were with us, the people that we'd employed, the people that invested so there was a period where me and my co-founder didn't get paid for like seven months. We're not independently wealthy. And at that point, it's pretty easy for your life to start unraveling because, you know, I'm a, I'm a fairly sort of happy, friendly guy. I, I was married. I'm married again now. I've got a kid. I'm very happy. Said so no one cry for me. But it basically cost me my marriage because my first wife married this, this happy, sort of excitable guy that, you know, it was like she'd been missold because <laughs> I start this company. And every night she comes home and there's this sort of sad bloke sat moping on the sofa on his laptop trying to figure out how to fix the business falling apart. So I ended up divorced. I wasn't getting paid, starting to have sort of HMRC debt collectors calling and thinking, 
Christ, like this is this is actually pretty bad and I don't know how to get out of this. And sort of the will to keep going is no longer enough. And at that point, thank God somebody introduced me to the book Traction and the Entrepreneurial Operating System because I'd already been maniacally reading everything I could to try and work out how to fix my many, many operating problems. It's just this one book simplified everything I'd previously read into a structure that I could then implement. Well, first of all, thank you for your honesty and your openness. Like, it's not easy. We don't tend to talk about the mistakes we've made, particularly when they lead to divorce. I think it'll really, we're not alone. Lots of us have walked these types of challenges. So although I don't really want to move into EOS, I feel like you've primed us and we have to. Just to be open myself, maybe not quite as open, no divorces being laid out here. Never read the book, read a lot of blogs, read bits of the website, and for whatever reason, kind of thought like, oh, not another process, not another OKR book, can't be bothered. There's probably an interesting point here, right? So one of the humbling things I learned going from lawyer, sales guy to tech CEO is got to meet customers where they are, not where you want them to be. So I would suggest that superb operators, if you're going to work with visionaries and not all companies have them, you sort of have to meet the visionary where he or she is because they're going to see the world different to you. Things that are easy to you might be hard or confusing to them. And so probably the reason that you, and I dare say many of your listeners either haven't heard of ES or have not been drawn to it is because it might feel like painting by numbers or like, you know, coloring in with crayons at the local pizza restaurant. But from an operating perspective, that's the level that your average visionary type founder is going to be starting at. Because if they saw all the pitfalls that you see as world-class operators, they probably wouldn't have started and none of the companies that you can go run would exist. And so I think the thing to think about from an EOS perspective is that it is the first step in the journey towards understanding you for a very, very different type of person. That's what I love about it. The great tragedy is there's lots of brilliant operators that work with like mad visionary founders and they can't find the language to talk to each other in such a way that they can get on the same page. Yeah, which is why the title of this episode is How to Tame a Visionary CEO. So come on, Rob, I guess we've made everybody wait long enough. How do you do it? Okay, so first I have to recognize that there's a problem. Like in a way, if you were working with me, you're lucky because like my life's fallen apart. So you don't need to persuade me of anything. I can see I I just need somebody to pick me up and help me put it all back together again before I have a heart attack. So the, the way the book Traction starts, or there's another book called Greater Grip, which is a bit more of a sort of practical narrative on how you might implement the system, basically starts by describing a business that's not performing very well. EOS is not really designed for companies that don't know who they are. Like I wouldn't recommend it for a company that's younger than two years or got less than half a million quid in revenue. So assuming you've been around long enough to have some sense of who you are, what the customers you you can serve might be, it starts by sort of speaking to the visionary and saying, why is your reality so far away from your dream? You think about nothing else. You've been probably unsuccessful in other things that you've done in your life. You're not a loser. And yet it's not working, is it? Like, And how can it be that you've got all of this willpower and charisma and support and you're giving it every single ounce you've got and it's not going anywhere, right? Like it's probably not you and it's probably not effort. It's probably something you're doing or not doing that's creating a block, okay? And so when you open the book and you read that, you're like, okay, okay, tell me more. And then it goes on to, you know, it's very flattering. It calls the mad founder a visionary, 
which is quite un-British. I think there's a reason that it sort of originated in America and is bigger in America than it is here because you feel like a fucking idiot calling yourself a visionary. I mean, who wants to be a visionary? Nobody wants to be a visionary if you're, if you're, unless, you're <laughs> unless you're the sort of person you don't want to get stuck next to at a dinner party. But it is still a positive term. So it says you're a visionary. You're a million ideas a minute. You know, the future of civilized society depends on people like you. Okay. And then it's like, but... <laughs> You know, but you can only help a gazillion people if you can actually make your dreams real. And making your dreams real requires typically six components. And so in ES, they talk about vision, data, process, traction, issues, and people. And Beth rocks sit in the traction component. So it's like there's six components. Pretty much all businesses can run coherently using these six components. And then the rest of the book just goes through to talk you through them. And then what the visionary starts to experience something not totally dissimilar to what I think the average excellent operator might think. They're like, we're already doing most of this. <laughs> you're like, and you're not like, you know, you, if you're doing like most of it, you, there's still quite a good chance you'll get no traction. You've got to do it properly, uh, which visionaries are not very good at generally. Just again and again, takes you through the book talking about what excellence looks like in each of those six components and just consistently simplifying and coming back and, and bringing the visionary back to this place of if you're not doing something wrong, why are you not getting what you deserve? And that's very hard to escape for a founder, you know, like if it's not going that well. I actually think the harder it would be much harder to be an operator trying to keep up with a visionary that is running a shit show. But for some reason, all the metrics are going in the right direction. Like that business will one day run out of steam and implode spectacularly. But it will be after the COO has given up probably because they just won't have the purchase on the visionary to correct course for them. So then maybe just from there, so now that we have the high level, can you take us down a level in terms of the tactical side of it? So you talked about five or six pieces of the puzzle that you just described and rocks being a component as part of traction in this case. Can you just give us a bit of a, a sketching of if you had to describe three or four things coming out of that book or out of those pie-shaped elements where if you implement these three or four things, here's what I would suggest in terms of what those things are and how I would actually do them. Yeah, so a vision requires you to create something called a vision traction organizer. It's basically a one-page business plan where you start by saying who you are and what you're trying to achieve, who you are being your sort of core values of the organization, where you see the organization in 10 years, What's a three-year milestone to plausibly be able to get there? What's a one-year milestone to plausibly be able to get to the first milestone? And then what are some quarterly strategic initiatives that need to happen organization-wide and within the leadership team roles in order to be able to credibly hit the one-year plan? Not complicated, but it forces you to break that down. It's very common that angel investors, directors, leadership teams have actually never really agreed on that. So that's your first source of dysfunction. Then it talks about data-driven decision-making. So if you were stuck on an island and you couldn't call and harass your colleagues, what numbers would you need to see as leading indicators of the performance of the organization? Because again, lots of founders are sort of, they know they need to be numbers-driven, but they've never seen really what that looks like. Or even if they worked in a big company, the numbers would have been so sophisticated, driven by revenue ops or something, that they get totally swamped in the big and they can't succinctly describe on one sort of 10, 20 row G sheet what good looks like on a sort of 13 columns looking at sort of rolling quarterly numbers presented in a time series. So you have to do that for data. Then process is just recognizing that if you want consistent outputs, you need consistent inputs across 
you know, most companies break into a handful of core processes as to how you recruit and retain good people, how you deliver the product or service, how you bill and manage finance and supporting functions. Traction is the kind of rhythm by which the organization runs that drives accountability and good habits. So there, there are weekly meetings where you're designed to rate the meeting a 10. They call it a level 10 meeting. That's based on the the fact that most meetings that we all attend in poorly run companies, if you asked everybody at the end of it to rate it, they'd be like two, three, maybe four, right? So like very few startup people have ever felt what it feels like to be in meetings that you constantly rate nine or 10 for effectiveness and enjoyability. Issues are the issues in any company. More often than not, startups, actually companies of all sizes, but very much startups, they're very good at talking around issues. They're not very good at identifying root causes and then solving them. So in in Traction, they have this, this system again, which sounds too easy to be credible. Identify, discuss, solve. You'd think that everybody just does that anyway, but it turns out they don't. There's lots of discussion, not a lot of root cause analysis or solution. And then finally, people. So how do you make sure you've got the right people in the right seats? Um, There's a tool called the People Analyzer. Yeah, I can see why I picked up the book and then put it down again. (laughs) Because it does seem like... uh, (laughs) I think this is like comes back to my OKR problems. Like I just rebel against frameworks and I'm like, yeah, I already do it. Don't tell me what to do. You don't know me. And I feel like this one is like, oh, somebody's taken everything out of my brain and put it into a book. Like that makes sense. So maybe just in that breath, Jeffy, why would you not just hire a COO that's experienced and knows what they're doing? Because I feel like when I when you reel that six elements off to me, I'm like, okay, that sounds like my job. <laughs> like in terms of what I actually do for a living, why not just hire somebody to come in to do this? I think you should. I think if you can, you should. I'm most interested in founders trapped between half a million in revenue and 5 million that find themselves in the position that I was in, at which point you probably wouldn't want to join me. If you've got a very hot company, you're well-funded, it's exciting for folks like you guys, then yeah, absolutely. Or I mean, if you can get a co-founder that knows how to operate, awesome too. For me, this is very specifically about visionaries that get going, get themselves into trouble and then don't know how to get out of it. And then also, Rob, when we were talking before the episode, you made a point that I thought was really important, and you have not made it yet today, which is in the EOS, there are two roles. And this is where the taming comes in. Yes, absolutely. So just, and thanks, Beth, because you're absolutely right. So just to continue Brandon's point, I think the other point is I get the impression, and I sense you've experienced this through your community, When a seasoned operator comes in, if they come in later than co-founder, I think sometimes there can be an authority challenge, particularly if visionaries are enjoying a little bit of success, where they don't necessarily want to eat their vegetables, take their medicine. You can opine on that better than than I can. But that's right, Beth. In EOS, the model does require a visionary to be or identify an integrator. And the system's quite rough on visionaries that think they can integrate when they can't. Integrator's basically COO. And at that point, I think you find a great many people in my position suddenly become ops evangelists and sign up to ops podcasts and do all the things that I'm now doing because they do really, really respect your role and understand that there's no way that they can be successful with their skills and limitations without partnering up with someone like you. The challenge then is whether they can get you on the bus, whether they can afford you or persuade you. Cool thing about EOS is you can actually blood new future COOs by giving them a playbook that gives them vicarious experience. 
right? Because you integrate a, when you use a system like EOS, which I know is very noddy for you guys, is a playbook. It's a system. So it's, it's more a state of mind than a set of skills than a set of experiences because you replace the lack of experience with the framework. Yeah, I really get it for that reason. I suspect I'm being a bit snobby and I will now actually buy the book and will learn 400 things from it and kick myself and have to like come on and explain how I was completely wrong. So I suspect that's my future, but also the ability of using it as a way of finding a common language between an operator and a visionary seems massively valuable and something that means that pretty much everyone listening should go and read the book just to help start to speak a common language. That's certainly my conclusion. I've never met an entrepreneur that believes in EOS that doesn't cherish an operator. I cannot think of a single instance, and I'm a fairly passionate member of this community. It really elevates the professional operator to the very sort of zenith of the organization. So everybody now has their Christmas present list for their CEOs for December. Exactly. Well, that's what I was going to ask, actually, which is, so if you're in uh, an organization where you have the visionary and the visionary is stuck, like you described, but they're not coming to any revelations or conclusions as to how to proceed, and they're just doing what they do, and you're an individual that works within that company, what is it that you can do as an individual to help encourage and nudge that CEO in the right direction? That's a really difficult position to be in. I acknowledge that because if the organization doesn't have culture of feedback, doesn't really know where it's going, doesn't know what the what a person's a great fit versus a poor fit looks like. It's sort of it can be easy for a visionary type person to dismiss someone as just not getting it, even though they very much get it. So what I would do is you can't control necessarily how the visionary is going to react, but you can take control of your own life and your own career and your your own self-esteem, self-respect. So if you buy the book and you believe in it, and lots of other operating systems by the way, I just the one I like COS. I would buy the book and I would give it to the visionary, probably with a note. And you can only do this if you feel it sincerely. And I think you would say, I think this model would really help us. And I actually want to work in a company that's running this model or something like it. And I feel so strongly about this that I'm I'm going to go look for companies that run on this because I'm a professional operator. I want to work at the very top of my game and I'm not going to be able to achieve that in an organization that doesn't understand really what I do. And I think a lot of visionaries, if the operator integrator is is good, I think that will scare them into reading it and taking it seriously. And then uh, just getting back to Bethany's question earlier, Bethany and I are seasoned CEO professionals that have done this for quite some time. And I'm just curious now, is there any, now that you've experienced EOS and you've done it for quite some time and you're really a passionate advocate of EOS, is there any learnings from that experience that you could share with us that you think would be interesting as for us to understand, especially our audience being CEOs in this case that may, may not be familiar with EOS? I think it would be immensely helpful if you as a community got better at explaining your philosophy, your process. I would imagine, look, it might not be look, what you're going to do, write an ebook working with Brandon. I totally like what I'm saying might not be practical, but humor me. I'm a quote visionary. You probably could write a notion page that explained your version of the components, what it means to work with Brandon, like what energizes you, the type of organization that you're proud of, like how you think that's going to help the organizations that you come into move through the gears. I think that's really inspiring. The book traction makes it very clear that EOS is just one operating model created by this guy, Gino Wickman, with no more experience than you, I suspect. So you easily could author your own operating system. And I suspect many of your audience could as well. 
it's not fair on visionaries to make them force them to try and understand your value and your system like in advance. Like they just, they're just different languages. So that would probably be my, my suggestion and advice definitely for experienced people because your founders otherwise are not really going to understand the value until they experience it. And it's going to be really hard to find chemistry between you when you, they don't understand your value and you don't know if they're going to appreciate your value or allow you to be yourself and implement your system. So I don't know if you read the high growth handbook, but I think Eli Gill in that book actually talks about a great manager at Google that wrote a like guide to working with so-and-so, which I suspect is a version of what I just suggested. So you've really come full circle. Like now all you do is read ops books. You were listening to our podcast on OKRs. I'm assuming you've read a lot of Lencioni. You're reading growth books. Are you still in EOS 100% or have you created your own? I'm very open to it, actually. I want to be world-class at whatever I do. I'm never going to be a world-class operator. I can be a, uh, I hope I can be a world-class quote puke visionary and be successful by working with a world-class operator integrator. If she or he has a playbook system methodology they believe in that's a right fit for our organizational goals and people, I would follow that probably. One of the things I've realized though, and by finding EOS and how simple it was, I now read business books because I just love reading and learning. I don't confuse my enjoyment of reading and learning with that necessarily enhancing my art as an entrepreneur any further. You know, it's a bit like these very studious musicians that just can't write a good song. There's a level of learning scales and music theory after which you basically lose most of the music listening public. And it becomes more like practicing science than music. And I think it's probably the same in entrepreneurship. So for me, it's enough to have found a system that works, elevated operators to the place where they rightly should be in the entrepreneurial community, and then preach the gospel like I am now on your podcast to make sure that people that are operationally excellent know, frankly, know who I am. <laughs> no, that makes a tremendous sense. Actually, just one deep dive question. Uh, it's now piqued my interest. The L10 at the level 10 meeting because I think we all struggle with meetings to be effective consistently. So just on a deep dive basis, when you look at this L10 concept, can you maybe describe how do you create an L10 meeting? What does an L10 meeting look like and how do you make it happen? Okay, so remember the principle of an L10 is when you think about implementing EOS, you generally get asked a few questions and there's a tool called the organizational check. You can look it up on Google and you can get your leadership team to complete a questionnaire and it will say how aligned or misaligned your organizations are. One of the questions is like, how effective do you find the average meeting? And as I say, people say two, three, four. So EOS, the book Traction recommends you just try to stick strictly to this weekly meeting where it has a, a fixed agenda. So you start with what they call a segue. And a segue is like, Say something good that happened from your week. It takes only five minutes. It's not allowed to take more than five minutes. There are some principles of this meeting has to start on time. Start with that. Everybody says, you know, what was good for the week. It creates like a a sort of calm, friendly tone for the meeting. You go through and talk about your rocks. So no commentary, just on track or off track. That's your quarterly initiatives. You look at the scorecard. Any numbers that are off track make their way down to an issues list. You review your to-dos from the prior week. There are two types of to-dos in EOS. Basically, if something can't be accomplished in a week, then it goes onto a list into the Vision Traction Organizer I talked about earlier. And when you do your quarterly review, you pull issues off of there to say, is this so important that it needs to get solved in the next week? It's great for visionaries because otherwise visionaries come in with a new problem every day and totally like derail the organization. So it's like, can it be solved in a week? Can it be solved in a quarter? So things that should have been solved in a week, obviously should have been solved since the last 
level 10 meeting you quickly go through that and then you're into issues basically so you've got your issues list people typically have thought of those during the week they might have put them on the agenda and then you pick very quickly you don't analyze it to death but you go around the room and say okay what issues do we want to tackle you pick them in in threes so you'll say what are the top three that we need to solve you run ids you get through them you solve them you then pick the next three until you run out of time on 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 the level 10 you then do a quick wrap up you make sure the to-dos are allocated for the following week everybody rates the meeting and you absolutely finish on time that's it again noddy you guys would already know to do this but visionaries don't (laughs) we did a very similar one how long is it 90 minutes generally. They can be quicker. Remember, I never experienced hyper growth. So for me, my business went from crazy to calm. We ended up with happy customers, some really big customers doing well. I actually didn't tell this, my sob story at the beginning, that our business was ultimately acquired. So yeah, it had a happy ending. And, and actually, although we weren't growing like a weed, it was a company I was really proud of. Happy customers, happy colleagues, like growing, growing modestly. We just needed to be a part of a bigger company to realize the full potential. So that's what we did. And so our issues actually stopped expanding. I think if you were growing really fast, then obviously your issues list would continue expanding with breakneck scale. But that isn't something I've experienced. I'm sure you have many years ahead of you. <laughs> I, I fully intend to. Rob, we have more questions, but unfortunately running out of time. So the final question is, if our listeners are only going to take one thing away from today, what is it? Work somewhere where you are appreciated and explore the system that I've just talked you through. There are many others. And don't settle for a company that is happy or founders that are happy living in chaos. But before you throw your toys out of the pram, give them this book or another one and give them the opportunity to come meet you where you are. Thank you, Rob, for joining us on the Operations Room. If you like what you hear, please uh, subscribe or leave us a comment and we will see you next week.